Welcome to the One Last Sketch Podcast, an irregular program devoted to science fiction, fantasy, and history. We do not have a set recording schedule. We basically do this when we want to. This is episode 36. I'm your host, Michael Wojcik. And I'm Marie. And I'm Corey. We are coming to the end of 2017, so we thought we'd just throw together a podcast about stuff that we read or watched or played this year that made us happy because, well, we've all been watching the news over the course of this year, and most of it did not do any of those things. I stopped watching the news in late August, September, so actually I've been much happier since then. We can all be glad that there hasn't been a nuclear war yet, so... Humanity has survived one more year, and that is something to be proud of, I guess. Fewer major recording artists have died this year. On the other hand, if the nuclear war does happen, we'll get to see which science fiction writer's vision of the future was most accurate. All of them. I'm honestly doubtful that that there's going to be one that soon, so there you go. I have to say, 2017 did not make a giant impression on me with discovering book series that I just fell in love with this time. But there were a few. (laughs) I'd say actually it was a pretty good art year for me. I found Morris LaCayla Glynn to read, basically. (laughs) A few other things of uh, good authors I appreciate. I also actually did some of the kind of reading I'm supposed to do for the whole career thing that I have going on. So that's good, too. (laughs) I was actually surprised, because when I was kind of looking back on what I'd read this year, I didn't remember it as being a particularly inspired year, but then I just kept writing down titles, like, oh yeah, this was good, this was good, this was good. So I think part of the problem I had is I read just a lot of mediocre stuff, or a lot of stuff that was just crap, with a few good books mixed in, and I didn't realize how many good ones I'd read until I actually counted them. Yeah, you had a long... Yeah, the Nightland... Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Nightland will really tip those scales for you. Just a lot, yeah. yeah. Yeah, around that time, Corey had a long, dry spell of good literature. I mean, if we're talking about art, then I feel like this was definitely a good year for me of just getting into artists and markedly improving my own drawing skills. Mm-hmm. At least I could see that my anatomy was getting better, and that was rewarding. Mm-hmm. But like reading lots of books, doing lots of art takes a lot of time. So yeah. you need to, if you're doing one thing, you're probably not doing the other. <laughs> There's only so many hours in a day and you have to decide eventually what things you're going to be good at. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we're just going to do a round table format here where everybody lists a thing that they want to talk about. Mm-hmm. grouped into thematic categories of various media, and we'll start with books. Mm-hmm. So probably the standout for me this year was reading Peter Higgins' Wolfhound Empire trilogy, which is a fantastical take on Soviet history set in this industrial gloom landscape where... Folktale creatures are enslaved into the industrial system. It takes a lot of its inspiration from Cold War thrillers. Definitely has a lot to say about Stalinism and the Cold War, the nuclear aspect of that. I think one of its most brilliant aspects is that it introduces nuclear weapons into a setting where extraterrestrial 
Cthulhu-like creatures exist <laughs> and how that makes humanity completely flip the power balance on the planet in which this takes place. Mm-hmm. One of the few fantasy trilogies where, by the end, people are trying to colonize their solar system and sending out nuclear pulse rockets all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wrote a giant blog post series on this with another blogger, Alistair Cheerney, who mm-hmm. blogs at the Futurist Dolman. You can find that on onelastsketch.wordpress.com. We, yeah, it's really long. We had a lot to talk about, and it definitely only got into just a bit of how much sheer stuff Mm -hmm. was in these books. It's a very interesting read. Peter Higgins has a lot of things to say. It's not the cleanest books out there. It's... Mm -hmm. A lot of ideas jammed awkwardly together, mm-hmm. but it ends up being more interesting because of it. <laughs> so not Dragon Quest. Oh, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> I did read that this year. You did remind me. We were going to podcast about it, and I was just like, you don't, I, don't wanna... I have nothing, Marie. <laughs> You're like, I don't want to revisit this ever again. The best As... I can say is that it w- it definitely was better than the first book. Yep. Uh, very little happened. <laughs> a lot of committees. Yeah, it's high fantasy with dragons, but most of it takes place in meeting rooms. Yep. So. Yeah. As for books that made an impression, yeah, Dragon Quest kind of did. <laughs> uh, don't say too much more, or else, you know, the frothing and McCaffrey fans might come and try to murder you. But um, they probably won't be able to get to you because, you know, most of them don't actually have dragons to ride on. So, <laughs> It would be cool to have dragons to ride on, but I'm pretty sure we would need much more flame retardant building material for our houses. Yeah, well, whatever. It's, it's, you know what? For me, that book is purely nostalgic. And when I read it now, I'm like, uh, it's not very good, but very nostalgic. So I read it over and over anyway. <laughs> it wasn't painful. I got to the end. Uh, I think it was painful. You were you were bitched about that one. <laughs> I bitched about it, but I mean, actually reading it did not feel like a struggle in the way the first one did. <laughs> it went down easy. All right, then. Don't read the th- the next one in it. it. I know you're not going to, but it's also, again, not as good, I'd say. All right. I guess I've already started talking, so I'll go next. I was going to send this to you again for a podcast, but I feel like we actually won't have enough material to talk about it. So I read the next Margaret. Which is uh, a really um, a strange book for me to read because it's um, uh, what is the name of the author? I can't remember. Uh, hang on, it's just on the floor over here. Let me just grab that. Janice McDonald meant, um, although I think, if I recall correctly, um, she crossed out because I have this personally signed. She crossed out the meant, so I wonder if she got divorced or something. Anyway, she goes by Janice McDonald. I read this book purely because I've had it since junior high, and it's one of these things that one encounters at a young author's conference, which lots of uh, Canadian kids who kind of like reading and writing will have ended up going to, where local authors sort of give you little workshops on how to do things, and also... Yeah, I certainly went. Yeah, and also hawk their books at you. And I got this book, and I think I tried to read it about five times, but... um, in in grade seven or eight, certainly, I 
didn't understand a lot of the initial things about what was going on. It was too complicated for me then. And then I think in high school, I was like, just not that excited by it. In the university, again, I was kind of thought it was sort of not interesting. But now I think it's hilarious <laughs> because it's um, set at the University of Alberta in the 1990s. So not the University of Alberta that we know, but probably the university that like my elder sister knows. <laughs> with uh... By the way, this is how we all met because yeah. we all went to the University of Alberta. Yeah, yep. You, you run into people. And Marie and I got married because of it. TMI. But anyway. <laughs> the fact that we're married is too much information. Probably, wow. Probably people don't care. Wow, I feel case. so loved. Oh, sweetie. Uh, anyway, so this was one of these things that's funded by the Alberta Foundation for the Arts. Um, and it's a murder mystery uh, set in uh, the U of A. Very kind of weird to read all the things. And some of the things that she mentions closed while we were there or didn't exist anymore by the time we went there. So I thought those funny little locales in Edmonton. So it's a great little sort of local writer feel to it. But I'd say that mechanically the book is not actually that great. It has this weird thing where um, it talks a lot about amazing writing because there's this mysterious author character in the book who wrote things in an amazing way, and it just should be a total spoiler alert now, by the way, because I'm just going to tell you what happens. Um, yeah, you're assuming that most listeners could even obtain this book. I think you can get it online if you so, really want wow. to. Um, but what happens is basically the person, a person really wants to study this author in grad school, so she goes to the U of A, and that's the opening premise. And then she, because there's one professor that's, that uh, works on this author. Anyway, she meets this this professor, can't get a hold of the mysterious author. Then, oh, this author might actually be dead, because, you know, that's the announcement. She has died, and then this leads to, like, you know, going to Grand Prairie and looking in, like, a cottage nearby, which I also found weird, because I lived in Fort St. John for the first part of my life, and it's like, oh, it's very strange. But, um... Basically, the uh, she, she comes to the conclusion that her professor has murdered this author, and you know, it kind of does an investigation around it. But you can tell almost immediately from the book that the professor and the author are the same person. Like it's pretty much obvious from the beginning <laughs> that that is going to be the the conclusion. I don't know how it was that I drew that conclusion, but I was like, oh, around chapter like three or four, I was like, oh, um, I I think I know what's going to happen here. Anyway, it's kind of, it's actually quite kind of funny. It's fairly, like, cleverly written. I'd say that, you know, mechanically it's, you know, enjoyable. I read it in, it's not long. I read it in two, in two evenings. You could read it in a day if you really just sat down and did it. There's many paragraphs devoted to describing amazing prose, which is only funny because it's done in a book that is doesn't have that level of, of amazing prose. And the kind of book of book it's talking about sounds basically like a very Margaret Atwood sort of book that it's talking about, which was a really surreal thing to read since we've all been, you know, exposed to Margaret Atwood as our required <laughs> Canadian content going through school sort of thing. Also, the book is called The Next Margaret, which I think you would immediately thought was a slightly presumptuous title. Uh, the author is still alive, and I think she's, she's actually written furthers in this series. The main character is called Randy Craig, um, Miranda Craig, and, you know, it's further murder mysteries. This one's technically not a murder mystery, because the only person who dies is the professor at the end who shoots herself. 
Apparently the whole motivation for this was that she wanted to get an academic position, and instead of doing all the academic work, instead just created an author that would be worth studying. And I don't buy this as a premise, because I think it's much harder to become an author than it is to become a uh, academic writer, or an academic professor. Yeah. I, I love that premise that it's easier to become a genius best-selling author than it is to become an English prof. Yeah. And I mean, also, the author herself is, I think, um, a prof- was a professor at the University of Alberta specializing in crime fiction. So it's very Mary Sue the whole way through. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. There's lots of Mary Sue historical literature, like, uh, I don't know, the uh, the burning, what's it called? I'm kind of, kind of remember, trying to remember Cavan, Cavendish's thing. Oh, the Blazing World. The Blazing World. The Blazing and world. moving forward from there. So, yeah. but anyway, even though you know what happens, it's it's kind of fun to read if you're kind, if you're from the Edmonton area. I think everyone else will kind of find it to be sort of probably not really that yeah. amazing. So this is one where the context in which you read it has a lot to do with your enjoyment. I'd say so, because this reads a lot like a lot of in-jokiness in it, and I can appreciate a lot of those, but I think a lot of it would be pretty obtuse for, say, someone who's, I don't know, from the other, like from Europe or something, would probably not find this to be that appealing. And, um... The, the, and the main plot point of the, of the mystery is kind of obvious from the beginning, so you sort of lose that part, which makes a mystery fun. And now I've told you how it works, so probably no one who listens to this will read it. Yeah. So sorry, Janice McDonald, but that, that would be my review of it. I enjoyed it. Um, I'll probably keep it around, but I don't know if I'll read it again without it. <laughs> Just to kind of make a closing point on that, there's nothing really wrong with Mary, St- Mary Sueism as long as it's well done. Yeah. I think the problem is it so often isn't. That's why people think it's automatically bad. I don't think it's actually automatically bad. I mean, you write what you know, mm. I think, in most cases. Anyway, so, yeah. moving on to me, I guess? Yep. Um, so one of the reading projects I've had on the go this year is I've been working my way through the collected short fiction of Rogers Lasney. Um, it, there are six volumes. I finished up to the fourth. And I think just to pick one kind of example short story that was a lot of fun, it's called Unicorn Variations. And I won't spoil it because it is legitimately a good story in its own right. But the story behind how it got written is pretty funny. Um, so Zelazny was approached by, I think, three different publishers who were doing reprint anthologies. So they're anthologies of work that had previously been printed. And one wanted a story on unicorns, one wanted a story on chess, and one wanted a story on or uh, to make story set in bars. And George R. R. Martin, who's good friends with Rogers Lasney, jokingly suggested, why don't you write a story about a unicorn playing chess in a bar, sell it somewhere, and then you can sell it to all three of these reprint anthologies in turn. So he did. <laughs> <laughs> and he apparently made quite the killing selling the piece four times, but it's a legitimately hilarious story. Like, it's, as the premise I just told you, it's a unicorn playing chess in a bar. Um, the fate of the world may or may not hang in the balance. I'll let you read it for yourself. But it's just, it's one of those pieces where it's so silly a premise, but it works so well that you can't help but laugh a little bit as you read it. Yeah, no, it's, um, again, I don't want to spoil it, but I will say very enjoyable story. I highly recommend tracking it down. So which collection did you find this story in? Just so 
the listeners can know where to find it. Um, I don't remember the exact title, but there is a. If you look it up, there's a six volume anthol or six volume collection of the collected short stories of Roger Zelazny. It's in whichever the fourth one is. For the past few years, I've been making my way through Murakami's bibliography. I read some of his earlier novels this year. One of them was After Dark, which takes place over the course of a night in a love hotel. And there's <laughs> one kind of crime story that's happening, and then juxtaposed against it is, as usual, some weird magic realist stuff involving mm-hmm. a woman sleeping in a room, and it crosses over the other story but in ways that are unexpected or it's hard to figure out how exactly they could possibly connect except that they do it's short it's intriguing uh definitely makes you think by the end of it but also very hard to come up with any set conclusions of what exactly had been happening. So, <laughs> so typical Murakami. Typical of Murakami's earlier books, right? Mm-hmm. But I enjoyed it. Um, I also read a Murakami book this year. First first one. I'll be, definitely be reading more of his bibliography. Um, I read Colorless Sukuru Sazaki and his Years of Pilgrimage, which I understand is one of his less magical realist books, and it's more kind of um, interaction between people kind of story. Really good, though, and has the has the features that are common to, to a Murakami of, you know, exercise, food prepara- preparation, has <laughs> many common themes, but beautifully written, and um, but obviously very obviously very Japanese in the poignancy and some of the melodrama of some of the mm-hmm. parts of it, but it, uh, I think, was a good examination of how relationships between people uh, form a significant sort of part of someone's life is how I describe it best. And I won't spoil this one. It's it's worth reading, definitely. And I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, because yeah, I read Norwegian <laughs> Wood this year, too. And that's <laughs> another one of his books with absolutely no strange elements in it whatsoever, <laughs> with magic realism or any of that. <laughs> and it focuses on the same things with <laughs> character interactions. It's it was his, maybe his first bestseller or the first one that sold in those mm-hmm. incredible numbers. And I don't like it as much as his other stuff, which is mm-hmm. why I didn't include mm-hmm. it on my top list. But it's certainly mm-hmm. influential and in the same bin as the book you were just talking about. Yeah, I, um, I also read Colorless Tsukuru Tazaki in his years of pilgrimage this year. And I think I actually I read it first. And then, you did, yeah. Yeah, and then I gave it to Marie because I'm always after her to read some Murakami. Um. Yeah, I don't want to spoil it either. I will say Murakami is one of my favorite authors, and I'd actually recommend it as a good starting point if you've never read his work before, because... This went down pretty easy. Yeah, it goes down pretty easily. It's a good story. It kind of has all of the hallmarks of Zelazny, or not Zelazny, of Murakami, <laughs> without necessarily the kind of the weirdness that might turn some people off. And so my, the hope is that you read the naturalist one, and then you'll want to read the weirdness, because the weirdness is amazing. Yeah. Um, I just I describe his his writing. You guys can tell me if you agree. Having read more of his stuff, as being as being you know, um, sort of magnetic, and I'd say that it's somewhat heavy, but it's not necessarily dense. Actually, it's it's sort of not necessarily difficult to go um, through, and it doesn't necessarily wear you out <laughs> with each chapter. I disagree a little bit in that having read some of his other works, they can get very dense. Oh yeah, I guess IQ eighty four. 
kind of looked like it was. IQ-84 IQ is just long. Mm-hmm. Um, the Wind-Up Bird Chronicle is very dense. Um, Kafka on the Shore can get quite dense. But again, it's never dense in a painful way. It's always very beautiful. Like That's what I mean, is it's not like, say, um, oh, what's that one we did to the, the Gene Wolf one? Oh, Book of the New Sun. Which I would describe as a highly dense. Yeah. <laughs> so. you know, um, Murakami, like I said, he's one of my favorite authors, if not my favorite. And the way I always describe his books to people who haven't read them, it's like you've been... It's like you're part of something special for having read it. Like, you get to experience something special, and when it's done, even though it doesn't necessarily make sense, there's a very strong sense of fulfillment. Mm-hmm. It's like a good long run. Yeah. Not that I've had that experience, but I suspect that's what it's like. But yeah, I, I think that's a good <laughs> analogy or a good metaphor. Mm-hmm. All right. I guess you can go next, Corey, because you sort of just tagged onto that one. Well, I, I got to talk about Murakami, so... Okay. Michael? Off to you. I am still reading The Expanse by James S.A. Corey, a series of books that's now a pretty popular TV show. Very grungy, near, well, far future, where solar system has been colonized. Takes a lot of inspiration from Alien and Blade Runner. I mm-hmm. think the first book, Leviathan Wakes, was a mashup of noir, mystery, and extraterrestrial shenanigans in this very grim cyberpunk-like solar system setting. Uh, By the two books that I read this year, which were Cibola Burn and Nemesis Games, humanity is going on interstellar colonial shenanigans, but they're taking all their baggage with them. I'm not going to say these are particularly deep books, but they're they're thrillers. They're... Mm -hmm. They're airplane reads, and very entertaining. It has a very Firefly feel with the crew of the spaceship that forms the centerpiece of the story. Uh, except you actually feel like they're going to end it at some point properly. So. <laughs> On a similar, maybe, kind of tone, I read The Privilege of the Sword. Yes! <laughs> yes, I did! Which uh, Michael brought as, as a gift for us, and I'm really glad he did. Um, lots of fun in a fantasy world where everyone's LGBTQT in some way, <laughs> and uh, which is fine. It's just it's it's just a very interesting take on uh, gender gender interplay and understandings. Um, I think it's the second sort of se- is, is book in that setting. I feel like I can still go and read the first one because what I understand is that uh, the char- there's only a couple of shared characters and they behave kind of differently than they necessarily do in this one. A good romp. Um, good description of sword fighting. The main character learns the ability to duel way too fast for, like, any practical thing, but for narrative reasons has to. Um, really fun time. Highly recommended. You you said you appreciated how there's a female main character here, but it's not like she's, I want to go sword fight and go against my gender norms. She's forced to do that, even though what she really wants to do is put on frilly dresses and attend balls and so forth. Yeah. No, she's actually a really, really good character, because, you know, she's smart and and, uh, and everything, but she's also actually kind of sounds more like of the time period she belongs to. Similar to sort of, you know, how how Terran in the Chronicles of Pridane doesn't know how to ride a horse and various kind of things. It's sort of, she suits the the world she comes from. Yeah, that time period being someplace between the 16th and the 19th centuries, 
all mixed together. Yeah, sort of, sort of mashed together. Um, but her her change as a character is very uncomfortable for her, which I, I, I appreciated how that was written, actually. Anyway, Corey hasn't read that yet, and he will eventually. <laughs> Um, one I read this year that I really enjoyed, a friend recommended it years ago and I just finally got around to it, Still Life with Woodpecker by Tom Robbins. Um, it's ridiculous. It is, it's kind of this crazy, almost surrealist, comedic, philosophical work that just all sorts of crazy shenanigans happen. Um... Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how to even describe the plot. Like, <laughs> it's one of those books where the story's there, but it's kind of hard to summarize, and that's not a bad thing. It's, um... So one of the main characters is the princess of a, royal, a deposed royal family, currently living in the United States. Um, another one of the main characters is effectively an eco-terrorist before eco-terrorism was a thing. <laughs> and it's this weird mix of a love story and just philosophical musings and descriptions of bomb making and cocaine binges. <laughs> like, yeah, it's... It's hilarious, it's a really fun book to read, and it's just crazy. So if you want something that's very, a little twisted, but a lot of fun, I'd really recommend it. And despite all of the craziness, it also has a fair amount of depth to it. Well, I am done with my book pick, so if you want to do a Bring Out Your Dead... Yeah. You can? Uh, uh. I can. Um, I need Corey to remind me of the name of this... Um... I read that that's the last new book. Oh, uh, A Night in the Lonesome October. Night in the Lonesome October. I won't tell you too much about it. There's 31 chapters. There's 31 days. And uh, basically sort of everything that you kind of would love about a lot of Pulp Fiction characters coming together done in a very fun romp way. Lots of point of view of characters from, uh, who, are, who are dogs and cats. Really great. Good enjoyment. High reread factor, I'd recommend that one. The short version is that it's a humorous take on the Cthulhu mythos. Yeah, very much so. And it's it's a good, very good read. Um, I think it's probably good because it's one of the first one of these. It's not... Um, yeah, it, well, it yeah. was... Because that's such a common sort of trope to do over and over now, but I think this is one of the original. Yeah, it's well, the one with Jack the Ripper... Yes, yep. Jack the Ripper's a protagonist in this. It gets weird. Yeah, and you actually like him quite a bit. But anyway. I, I think, um, yeah, because... The Cthulhu Mythos, for whatever reason, has become incredibly... Like, it's always been fairly popular, but I find with the rise of the internet, it seems to have exploded more. It's cliche now, really. Yeah, and this was very much doing that humorous take in that kind of pre-boom time. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Another good one I read this year. Um, My Name is Asher Lev by Shane Potak. Potak? Potak? I'm, Potak or Potak? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. Um, famous book. Yeah, very so famous go. book it's a for classic. a reason. <laughs> so the premise is the main character, um, Asher Lev, is a member of a very devout Hasidic Jewish family. And the central conflict of the book, effectively, is him very much caring about his community, caring about his family and his heritage, and wanting to fit into it, while at the same time feeling very strongly compelled to make art and like he almost has to express himself 
And so the story starts with him at a young age and kind of how this there's a conflict between, you know, him and his father who wants him to be a good student and studious and scholarly. And he's not because he's always drawing and doodling. And then as it continues, that conflict kind of becomes greater and more pronounced until it reaches the point where as an adult, um, there's a certain emotional feel Asher wants to express and he's not able to find a way to do so in his own cultural context that really captures those emotions. So he ends up drawing on Christian iconography and actually painting a crucifixion. Um, and the subject matter of it is drawing, or again, it involves his parents and his family, but he's a devout Hasidic Jew drawing on Christian iconography. So this again causes a very strenuous conflict within his family. And it's, it's a, it's a beautiful book. Like it's wonderful description, wonderful writing. It's a very gripping story. And just, Ultimately, it's about the conflict between, you know, family expectations and culture, regardless of what that might be, and personal desire, personal fulfillment. And I really enjoyed reading it. High school students who might be listening to this, take note. It's a good argument for your essay. <laughs> uh, just a couple of things I want to mention the titles of, and I'll just do, do them in a long bit. So uh, we read Earth, Earth Sea. We'd have a podcast on that one. Um, go listen to that. I also read The Wind's Twelve Quarters, a short story collection by Ursula K. Le Guin, going from her early kind of work to later work, and her commentary on her work I found to be very insightful. Um, and it ends with Those Who Walk Away from Omelas, who's one of the, I think, one of the more famous stories she's written, and it's obviously very good. I love her concept of the psychomyth, so I'll leave that. Yeah, and, that book is kind of an essential thing for just anyone to have on their bookshelf oh it's so good like i'll go back and reread all of them yes. every story is fabulous i think she's basically my favorite author now because she's never ri ri written anything that i would say could be called bad but anyway um we also re i read to rain in hell which uh was a thing we did a podcast on as well i read conan did a podcast on that one i also read the third installment of marie brennan's dragon um, series, I think it's called The Tropic of Serpents. I've recently learned, partly because Michael sent me a link to a YouTube video on Marie <laughs> Brennan doing karate in Victorian dress, that she's actually finishing this series with, and at five books, so I'll pick up the other two, and then I'll read them, and maybe at some point we'll do a more thing on that. Basically, lots of fun. Every, every 90 or millennial girls who like dragons dream, basically, is <laughs> what so these books are. And I read, finally, The Onion Girl by uh, Charles DeLint, which I'd say is super grungy, super 90s, um, very new agey, and I actually had a hard time liking it, which was too bad, because yeah, I, I like I, some of his other work. I did but not I, finish I, that book. <laughs> yeah, no, I put it in one of those uh, little lending library things on the, that you see on, on, the, on the street corners, because I didn't want to keep that book. I found that the uh, representation of, of Native American peoples to be highly uncomfortable in this series. Yeah, that's a problem with Delint dating back to yeah. Moonheart, which was one yeah. of his early books, which is great, except for that one aspect where it's just, mm. oh my god, this is not a yeah. respectful representation of Native Americans at all. Yeah. Um, I, for some reason, I found it more problematic in this than I found it in Some Place to Be Flying, even though there's way more of it in Some Place to Be Flying, so I don't understand that at all. 
But maybe I'll reread that one and see if I actually can keep it or not. Um, hmm. Yeah, you know, everyone's a drug addict and has been, like, sexually abused in their past life and and everything. And it's just kind of super, super grungy, new age, real world. They're all artists. I found, I found it a little bit pretentious, actually. It is of its time. It is yeah. very, very 90s. Very 90s. All right. Um, I do have a few books that I'll get to more in depth, I think, as we go on. But just to kind of run down a few titles quickly as well, I reread Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, which is a ton of fun. I reread Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. I gotta say, I really enjoyed that a lot more the second time reading it. That may have been due to the fact that the first time I read it was for a class, and it was kind of rushed. <laughs> um, I finally got to reading Bone by Jeff Smith. We'll podcast on that. Yeah, which is why I'm not going into it in depth. <laughs> Um, I finally read The Chronicles of Perdane, which you guys have podcasted on. That was really good. Yeah, finally. And finally. I'm, Only after years of us telling him to read this. I'm currently nearing the end of The Field of Our Tapestry by... Guy Gabriel K. Guy Gabriel K. Um, <laughs> the one comment I'll make on that... They're great books. I'm really enjoying them. What I like about it is it has all of the typical fantasy tropes you'd come to expect... But they're not the focus. Like, there are battles, there are duels, there are swords and, like, magic and all this stuff. But the big in-depth emotional, like, the moments that tip the balance of the story that are actually important aren't the huge battles. They're not the epic sword fights. They're not, you know, the crazy pyrotechnic displays of power. There are a few of those that are important, but most of, like, the actual important moments take place within characters. They don't happen on a global scale. It's something happens to affect the character specifically that has bigger implications, but it's not like it's not like it takes the form of the typical duel or the typical battle that you'd expect in a fantasy novel. Like they're really well written and they're a lot of fun. Um, one other one for the list: "Stories of Your Life" by Ted Chiang, uh, the original novella or short story, whatever you want to call it, that inspired the movie Arrival, was in there. And good story. I think the movie gripped my attention a little more, but it, it was still a good read. He is a hard science fiction author in the classic mode, I find. Oh, I Very might like him much then. an ideas guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't find his work was too hard science fiction-y. He, he played more with the ideas that the science might represent rather than ensuring you had a perfect circuit diagram of how it worked. Yeah, there are really interesting ideas. Is that the collection that has the story about the people who are living in basically the Babylonian idea of the yes. universe? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the uh, the Tower of Babel, and they reach up to the sky, and they start tunneling through it, and yeah. No, that, that was a good story as well. But... Neat. So uh, I did open by saying that not many novels made an impression on me. I did read a ton of comic books this year probably the most that i've ever read <laughs> uh standouts from that full metal alchemist by hiromu arakawa very long you'd expect the plot would go off the rails at some point but it never does everything works comes together it's a big satisfying ending it's about Edward and Alphonse Elric, two brothers who have become state alchemists after one of them loses his body in a uh, 
experiment where they tried to bring back their dead mother and didn't quite succeed. So one of them had his soul transplanted into a giant suit of armor, and they're trying to get his original body back. And just in terms of artwork and layouts, all of that is excellent. There are some really great characters in this, really enjoyable plots, um, sub subplots, side quests. I mean, it is a long-running Shonen Jump series. It takes them a lot of twists and turns to get where they want to go. <laughs> All of nothing ever drags. You're always you reach the end of one book and you're like, "Oh, I definitely need to find out what happens next." This is all really interesting and there's always a little bit of that puzzle piece that's all going to fit together for the grand conclusion. So, really well constructed, actually has something to say about power structures and how governments interact with their populations. Uh, genocide in some parts goes unexpectedly dark places, sometimes unexpectedly thoughtful about its subject matter. And just for all that, it goes into some heavy themes. It will make you happy for having mm. read it. It's finished now, right? Yes. It Excellent. Is I might actually read it then. Finished. <laughs> That's my rule with those kinds of things. They have to be done. <laughs> <laughs> so they get caught in the uh... yeah i haven't read full metal alchemist yet i know even after us to do so um i have seen the original version of the tv show which my understanding is does deviate quite a bit from the comic so I, i'm kind of curious to see how the actual story goes yeah well the first tv series was made before the comics were nearly finished right yeah so. and then the second series full metal alchemist brotherhood my understanding is follows the comics quite closely so yeah, and I have no desire to really watch either of them because, you know, it's one of those cases where the comics are so good mm -hmm. that even if it was an accurate adaptation, it would somehow cheapen off, it. It would be better off just rereading the comic. <laughs> Makes sense. Speaking of other things that are also uh, movies, I think you also read uh, another important comic series. Yeah, this one is also up there Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, probably the <laughs> most important of the comic books that i read this year for sure it's a great it's a great read yeah, this is by hayao miyazaki it was written over a very long period of time before the movie of the same name came out in fact he started it to get that movie made mm. but he kept on going and yes it's a great movie I'm not going to argue about that it helped but, that he adapted his own work to film though yeah, but... And the second translation. <laughs> in the comic book, he he just has a lot more space mm -hmm. to, to touch on the themes that you wanted to in that movie. Mm -hmm. And there's just so much more happening. And mm -hmm. I mean, there are, there are arguments to be made that the characters are maybe too perfect, especially our main character, Nausicaa. But this is one of those cases where... Yes, she's perfect, she makes all the right decisions, but because of the circumstances she's in, even making the right decision is not the right decision. <laughs> well, the, the big thing with Nausicaa is she's an idealist, and she's a strong enough figure to remain being an idealist, even in a world that doesn't have space for idealism. So she makes decisions based on that, like you said, that don't always work out, 
but she doesn't let the frustration kind of break her spirit. She keeps trying and keeps pursuing doing the right thing in many cases because it's hard, not because it's the easy option. One thing that I, that I liked about this, the, the, and I've only seen the film, I do plan to read the, the manga, um, is, is, um, Miyazaki's creation of these fairly, fairly, I I don't want to just say strong female characters, but just, you know, female (laughs) characters who kicks it, who kicks some ass from their, from their viewpoints, whether it's in, um, his other films. And not necessarily the protagonist, but I think generally say... he does, I think, a good job. Well, I think the thing that. with Miyazaki's female characters, especially his female protagonists, is too often the mistake that's made when writing a quote-unquote strong female character is they write a male character and put them in drag. Like, that's that, effective... It's a female character who fulfills male ideals of what mm-hmm. strength is exactly yeah. whereas miyazaki's female protagonists mm-hmm. don't do that they very mm-hmm. much subscribe to different concepts or different perceptions of what it means to be strong what it means mm-hmm. to be determined what it means to be ambitious mm-hmm. and like i mean mm-hmm. his work speaks for itself <laughs> like there's no no further praise mm-hmm. we can heap on him that hasn't already just like what's her what's her name in um Princess Mononoke that runs the village. Oh, uh, Lady Eboshi. Because I, th- I think she's actually because she, she's created a place that's a haven for females in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because she cares about that quite a bit. And, you know, she's, she's masculine in some things but she's really feminine in lots of them. So, there you go. Yeah, and the template for those characters are in Nausicaa. A template for a lot of what appears in Miyazaki's yeah. other work. It's, mm-hmm. it's first found in Nausicaa. Mm-hmm. I'll say if you like the little glimpse of Princess Kishana that you get in the Nausicaa movie, mm-hmm. you get a lot more of her in the books, mm-hmm. and she is one of my favorite. Well, I <laughs> just, mean... just period, one of my favorite characters. She is my, great. My collection mm-hmm. of Nausicaa, it's two hardcover volumes. There may be an inch and a half, inch thick each. And the movie covers maybe like the first two millimeters of the first it's the volume. First quarter of the story, basically, is yeah. what the movie has. There's over a thousand pages, I think, in the collected editions that we have, which is yeah, the hardcover. Case, two hardcover. Well, it comes with a poster. Yep. <laughs> I think the only sad thing you had about that was that you realized that you read something that took like almost a decade to make in, you know, a couple days. <laughs> Four days. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Four days well spent. Oh, yeah, as, as a towering piece of post-apocalyptic ecological fiction, yeah, this... I wrote a blog post about this where I made a lot of comparisons to Dune mm-hmm. and other previous work and how mm-hmm. this is a very uniquely Miyazaki spin on that kind of ecological science fiction. Mm-hmm. Definitely a much more humanist spin, because even mm-hmm. the villains have some way to reach redemption, unlike, you know, Baron Arkin. Well, Miyazaki... Um, Miyazaki very seldom writes full of villains. I don't think he's ever actually written a stereotypical villain. Um... I read a beautiful description or perfect description of it one time in that his villains are basically evil in that they're succumbing to the Buddhist roots of evil, which are greed, ill will, and hatred. No, hang on. 
greed, ill will, and sorry, greed, ill will, and delusion. Right. So his villains aren't the embodiment of evil. They've allowed themselves to be kind of seduced or deluded by something that leads to evil action. They're still just people. Like the hungry ghost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, we could talk about Miyazaki for another hour. We should probably move on. That's a whole podcast. Well, maybe in when itself. Marie reads. Yeah, I think it very likely we will go as more depth on it. A, a, a closing point I'll make is that it's a fantastic series and it's one I know I'll return to. Yeah. Anywho. All right. Um, since we're kind of talking about, um, well, actually, I the only comic I think I've read, I think it was this year, was the Iron one, of, some Iron Fist. Which I wasn't that impressed with. It wasn't very well written, though. Yeah, uh, it wasn't that well drawn. I found the character really pouty. I read it in preparation for the uh, the Netflix series and um, didn't finish that series because I also didn't like the main character then, so maybe I just don't like Iron Fist. <laughs> I toughed out the series. Um, yeah, it's definitely not on par with the others. Like, mm-hmm. season one of Daredevil and Jessica Jones are light years ahead of anything Iron Fist even comes close to doing. Yeah. I do have a bring out your dead if you were going to move on to something else. Go ahead. From comics. So, as I said, I read a lot. Uh, Battle Angel Alita by Yushito Kushiro. Mm-hmm. It's a 90s comic. Ex- it's basically Ghost in the Shell if you took out all the philosophizing and just left the sideboards. <laughs> So basically, but the entire time, the artwork is incredible in terms of just the line art and the inking and the progression of panels. Uh, the dialogue is very 90s action movie. <laughs> Cyberpunk setting uh, actually has some pretty cogent class commentary, but... You'll have to look for it beneath all of the exploding heads and, <laughs> and Grace Jones in a killer roller derby tournament and that kind of stuff. So basically, if you take out the majority of what makes Ghost in the Shell worth reading. Yeah, but it's still worth reading because it's just so much fun. Probably okay. because it's less serious than Ghost Maybe, in the Shell. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> and I don't mean that to sound like a dismissal. Ghost in the Shell is an amazing read. But... Yeah. <laughs> I I started reading Vinland Saga. This is one of those manga that is not done yet and is climbing up into the hundreds in terms of chapters that have been released. If I could remember the author's name, (laughs) I would give it. But a while back, I read a comic called Northlanders, which was about Vikings that Mm -hmm. came out from American publishers that I did not like very much. Mm. And Vinland Saga, which is also about Vikings, is basically what I wanted those comics to be. It's very well researched. It does have the shonen action exaggerations, which is expected of a Mm -hmm. comic from Japan. But there are historical figures in this. It basically covers the rise of King Knut in the 1000s. It's meant to be a commentary on pacifism and violence, which is why the author chose this particular time period to cover. And it's just a really good piece of historical fiction in a a medium that doesn't really have that much historical fiction. Or if it is, it usually is paired with fantasy in some way. Mm-hmm. 
I read the latest volume of Saga. I don't know if I need to say much more about that. If you like the first volumes of Saga, there was a bit of a sag for the last couple of volumes, but it's picked up again. It's awesome. You will be frustrated when you get to the end. Because this is why I have about waiting until they're finished. Yeah. <laughs> once again, another cliffhanger and another year to wait before another volume of this comes out. Eventually I'll read them. Maybe by the time I'm 60 or something. I don't know. Yeah. For okay. web comics, I've kind of fallen off of the gag strips that were the most common uh, expression mm-hmm. of this form back when we were at university or in the early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, now I tend to go into long-form stuff, and Carcophona by Shilin Huang is... She's a Vancouver artist. It's extremely well-drawn, probably just in terms of technical and stylistic presentation, the best-looking webcomic I've ever read. It is a long-form story. It is a bit frustrating because it's definitely structured around those chapter issues, like you would have a release in a typical manga or comic book here Mm -hmm. but they're paced out in two pages per week so you end up just waiting for it to build up (laughs) to the point where you have a sufficient backlog where you can read through it but definitely worth it it does have aspects of this being a passion project that someone had since they were a teenager so Mm -hmm. they definitely have their little hang-ups that (laughs) Mm-hmm. and stylistic tics that they just can't let go of because they've been thinking of this story for 20 years now, it feels like. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's fun to dig into journeys like that. So yeah. that's Basi- that my bring out your dead. <laughs> Basically, I only read The Order of the Stick and Something Positive. Two comics that just happen to still be going. All the other ones I used to read online ended in some way. Um, yeah. And stay tuned for when we eventually talk about the what happened to the internet <laughs> podcast that we'll probably do in 2018. Anyway, yeah. Uh, think other things I I experienced um, vaguely Viking related. Not even Thor Ragnarok saw that. Loads of <laughs> reviews on that. Good time. Not as long as I say, but yeah. Um, something we watched for the first time was Taxi Driver, which is a um, pretty classic movie by Martin Scorsese. Um, I have to say, I thought it was a pretty accurate portrayal of, uh, psychosis. And, um, yeah, it made me depressed. It was like going to work without being able to treat the person I'm talking to. So, great. Um, didn't really like it. I think it's probably because for its time it was, it was land groundbreaking and now it's passe. I don't know if I'd say it's passe, but yeah, watching it, I can definitely see why it would have been groundbreaking in the 70s. Um, and so it's definitely an important film in terms of film history. But if you've seen any, like if you've watched movies in like the past 20, 30 years, it's, it's influenced a lot of them. So mm-hmm. basically when you sit down to watch it, it kind of has that element of, okay, it did it all first, but it didn't do it strongly enough to still trump what's come since. Mm-hmm. Like I get why it's important, but yeah, it wasn't. It's, it's a bit like watching Psycho. Like Psycho is a great movie. Psycho is a great movie. It is fabulous. I'd say Psycho probably has lasted a bit longer. Uh, in terms of watchability, but also Cycle is definitely a his- kind of a film history film at this yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, f- and, f- and funner news, I watched Little Witch Academia, because yep, Michael so said I should. <laughs> and um, basically, sort of like Hogwarts, more female and, you know, anime. Very uh, sort of... Uh, 
yeah. classically animated kind of a story. Uh, much like the next Margaret, you can kind of tell what's going to happen from the first couple episodes and what the story's going to be, but it's just kind of fun. The characters are, are pleasant to hang out with and see what's going on, and the stakes are sort of big, but then, you know, they're not, they're not really. <laughs> I guess it's like the world and stuff, but it still feels kind of small, and it's very aspirational, and Techno Witch yeah. is great. Yeah, so. I didn't watch that much anime this year after watching too much mm-hmm. in the previous couple of years, but I did watch this. Uh, mm-hmm. I have to say, most of the time in anime, the main character is either mopey or really good at everything, and Akko is not good at anything. <laughs> Which and is incredibly Char- Charm is just constantly making mistakes and bullying ahead. Uh, sheer force of will. And being constantly cheerful in a way that is not quite irritating. Nearly, but not quite. She's still just likable enough, I think. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, I've got another book. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> as far as politics go, we read. I read It Can't Happen Here by Sinclair Lewis. Um, it was written in the 1930s. Um kind of as a cautionary tale because people, you know, in the States were watching what was happening in Germany at the time and were very afraid and very paranoid. And so the book is about the rise of fascism in the United States and what a fascist America might look like. And despite being written in the 30s, it's very timely considering the current political climate. I won't go into too much detail on it, but it's, again, it's a good book. I think one of the things I really liked about it is it asked what does it really mean to be a moderate liberal in a world as screwed up as, you know, one with a, or as screwed up as one portrayed, which is again, one with a rising fascist government. And it very much looks at what it means to engage in political discourse, what it means to meaningfully protest. And yeah, I, I think Again, despite being written in the 30s, it's unfortunately become very relevant now, and I would encourage people to read it. Didn't watch many movies this year, but I did watch Wonder Woman with you guys. Yeah. What is there to say about that, really? It's a DC movie that's actually fun to watch. Yeah. (laughs) Basically, Wonder Woman set the perfect tone, and if they just follow it, they'll make good movies. But judging from the reviews of Justice League, they're not that following. Has it. not happened. Actually, I think what Wonder Woman proves is that if you want a good DC movie, don't include Zack Snyder. I think the thing that's important about Wonder Woman actually is the uh, ability of the sound editing and music editing to drive your narrative. Because the well-known and well-loved theme song that is uh, yep. electric cello was, I think, what actually made a lot of this movie really great, was the judicious n- not using that until, until the, right the moment. moment of actual superheroism occurring and um, waiting on that. That's what I think, actually, Wonder Woman show- showed. It was not so much, you know, the story or anything, but a lot of the kind of stuff that I usually think is super cool in movies, which is, like, the cinematography and sound editing and all those awards that people usually don't care about are the ones that I think are the coolest. <laughs> so. It's an exercise in impeccable aesthetics. <laughs> yeah, it was really good. And, you know, good action scenes. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. I'd probably watch it again if it was on kind of thing. Yeah. So, I don't know if you guys have gamed at all this year. Uh, not, not, really. as, not so much, actually. We did a Mouse Guard art role play with you when you were in town. 
Yes. Yeah, you guys almost screwed up on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and then he gave us an extra life, right? Um, yeah, I let you take back smashing that poor weasel's head in with a rock. Yeah. We got a little carried away, and then I was like, wait, the rest of them will kill you. Hmm. Yeah, so for people who don't know what Mouse Guard is, just substitute in a Red Wall RPG, and that's... <laughs> Yep. Yeah. That's the campaign that we played. Yeah. Uh, uh, as did... far as gaming goes, I took up Warhammer 40k this year. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. It's you know it's it's one of those things where it takes a lot of flack because the fanboys can be a little rabid and they can. Um, but it's a fun hobby. Like I like how it has narrative elements. I like how you can actually customize your guys. Like I like every element of it is fun. Collecting them is fun. Building them is fun. I'm too obsessive to do it in any kind of time. Painting them, painting story, <laughs> painting terrain, like like anything. If you want to invest all of your time and money in it, yeah, it's going to take over your life. But as just a side hobby that I can kind of return to every once in a while and maybe buy another couple of units, I enjoy it. So I did buy some stuff on Steam and good old games this year, which mm-hmm. I hadn't really done before. Uh, I'm currently playing This War of Mine. Which is an extremely depressing game where you take control of three civilians in the capital of an unnamed country somewhere in Eastern Europe that's within a civil war. And the idea is you have to survive the month, and it is very difficult to survive the month, as you might expect. I think just in terms of mechanics, there's nothing special. It's... A lot like other simulation games where it's like, I need to get this resource to build a thing. Hmm. The difference here is that there's little moral choices that will show up when you go scavenging or so on. And you can do what you will, but the characters, if you do something that's obviously being shitty, they will start getting depressed and talk about it constantly. (laughs) I shouldn't have let that... I should have given some food to that person. I shouldn't have killed that person. Why did we rob these people? And, yeah, some characters will just start breaking down the middle of your little room and crying. (laughs) And so far, I haven't survived the month. I'll probably need to give it a few more tries before I go to that. On the diametrically opposite side of the scale, I bought Momodora Reverie Under the Moonlight, which is a classic platformer, which is infuriatingly difficult. (laughs) Ah, classic (laughs) But it was very satisfying to defeat that final boss at the end. (laughs) It's just some really beautiful pixel art, uh, and very Nintendo-level toughness to bring you back to those days of mashing your controller. I'm pretty sure it was this past year, or failing that, it was the tail end of last December. Um, I played Shovel Knight. It was this year. It was this year, okay. I kind of want to replay it now. Um, Yeah, Shovel Knight, if you haven't heard of it, it's a retro-style platformer. You're a knight, your weapon is a shovel. It's Nintendo hard, but without being punishingly so. Like You can actually beat it. I don't know, it's a lot of fun. It's got a quirky, like the retro 8-bit art style, and the classic platforming, and you get to smack guys with a shovel. What more is there to say? <laughs> yeah, good waste of time. Just like Momodora, I'm sure. Well, while you guys were doing this, I was reading psychiatry textbooks. So there. Wish I could have played played games, but no. 
Well, if you spent less time on YouTube. <laughs> That's true. I mean, we did play some Cthulhu influenced game that we never finished. But... Oh yeah, Eldritch Horror. Eldritch Horror. Everyone got too tired to finish that, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> it's a fun. Oh, don't be wrong. Eldritch Horror is a lot of fun, but you need to start it early enough because it can't. Depending on how the way chance goes, yeah, there's there's a lot <laughs> of random elements, and depending on how they come up, it can either be a quick game or you can be at it for like days. <laughs> yeah, the strength of that game I find is just. Yes, your characters can die constantly, but every character that you draw has an interesting backstory mm -hmm. and a nice mix of powers, mm -hmm. which puts it above a Arkham lot Wars. of the other Cthulhu-oriented games, which I went to a game store in Edmonton this year, and I feel like half of the stuff in there <laughs> yeah. was Lovecraft-themed. Yeah. A little bit tiresome. Yeah. Uh, I, th I think the mechanic... Eldritch Horror is kind of the successor to Arkham Horror. I think Eldritch Horror has a better mechanic. It's it, it gets a little bit less plug and chug. Um kind of go, going in going in, you don't get necessarily trapped in locations. You always have, can make various decisions in terms of your strategy. And I think the game plays back at you in a much kind of fairer way, except that you can get screwed by chance every now and then, which is sort of yeah, sort it's, of fun. It's harder than Arkham Horror, but it is fairer. Yeah, I think it's more fun to play because it's just a smoother mechanic. You can just avoid a monster if you want to. I think that's <laughs> just a sign we've played too much Arkham Horror. <laughs> yeah, I think we've got Arkham Horror down in terms of how to do it, so oh. we haven't quite got Eldritch Horror down in terms of how to beat it. I think we start doing random character draw that might help. Yeah, but... I think that's what we'll do over Christmas. Speaking <laughs> of board games with an unnecessary amount of parts, uh, I played Scythe this year. <laughs> which is this Eastern European diesel punk resource <laughs> management game where you go around in a mech and try to build up your little empire. It's a lot of fun. I think a lot of people were disappointed with it because all of the artwork by Jakub, uh, I think his name is Jakub Ruzelski. I need to mm -hmm. look that up. I wanted to say Smirnov, but I know that's not true. Yeah, it promised this kind of giant military game with lots of battles, and that is not what the game is about. This game is about building farms <laughs> and yeah. transporting peasants around in your mech. We played Power Grid at one point. We've played that before. It's Basically economics. Similar kind of thing. What I like um, about Power Grid, though, and similar games is, like, Catan's another good example you've kind of got these games where the whole premise is effectively basic economics, mm -hmm. but the board game. So it makes it a little more digestible. It makes it a little easier to understand. Uh, Catan's way more fun than Paragrid, though, because oh, well, you can fuck people over so much easier Catan's, Catan. a, Catan's <laughs> a classic for a reason. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I bought a couple of Ryan Laucat games, 8-Minute Empire, Artifacts, Inc. Mm -hmm. Good little time wasters. Not much more to say about that. And I think this brings us to the end of stuff we had to say about media in 2017. Yeah, decent year. Between all of us, yeah, we gave a lot of things that listeners can look into, I think. Yeah. Just to kind of plug a couple more titles quickly, or another title, Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky. Awesome book, didn't have a chance to talk about it. Awesome book. If you like Hannibal. Sorry? Is that high fantasy or something? Uh, no, sci-fi. It's science fiction. If you like Netflix's Hannibal and sort of wanted to know more about profiling, you can also read Whoever Fights Monsters by uh, Wrestler, 
one of the FBI agents who created the um, profiling of serial killers based on the effect of the murder. Well written. He wasn't the only one who wrote it. Every time the sort of bio- biographical parts start to get a little tiresome, there's another titillating murder to murder description in there to get you through the rest of it. Good times. Yeah, well, I read the Analytics of Confucius, and I have nothing to say about that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a bit weird. <laughs> Happy New Year. Yeah. Happy, Happy New Year. Yep. Merry Christmas. Careening yep. into 2018. Mm-hmm. Who knows what we shall experience then? <laughs> Thank you all for listening. If you want to find past episodes of this show, you can find them at onelastsketch.wordpress.com. We're also on iTunes, Google Play Music, and Stitcher Radio. Where can we find you guys? Um, you know, I think at some point earlier in the year, I did a blog post on um, theatropexy.wordpress.com. Something I'd I'd love to. Get a little bit more. I may have to refocus that a little bit to broader categories, I'm thinking. I can be found on fromspeechfire.wordpress.com, and yeah, I need to update a little more often, but I do have one. It will be hopefully up soon. It's not like we have an obligation, but anyway. No, we can post as irregularly as we record this podcast. Exactly. Exactly.